All right, I'm here with Anthony Pompliano. Pomp, thanks for joining me. Absolutely, thanks so much for having me. So we've had a number of listeners ask us about doing an episode on the future of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and the blockchain. So I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast because from my point of view, you're one of the best at explaining these concepts in a clear and concise way. And so specifically, I'm really curious about how you foresee the U.S. monetary system evolving in the next five to 10 years and what you believe the role of Bitcoin will be within that new monetary system. But before we get into the future scenarios, it might be good to just talk about how we got to where we are today. So why has every fiat currency in history eventually gone to zero? And why are people like Ray Dalio right now saying cash is trash? Yeah, so I think that um, we've got to start at a conversation of just like what is money, mm -hmm. right? And today money is just a belief system, but that has not always been true, right? Uh, money in the past has been something that is rooted in uh, intrinsic value layered in with belief system. Right. And so what I mean by that is gold, for example, gold has value to it um, and it can be used for all kinds of things. So you hear people talk about, you know, it's jewelry, it's uh, a physical precious metal, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so what ended up happening was people looked at it and said, hey, I want to use this specific precious metal as money. I'm willing to trade it for uh, some other good service. And, and so kind of a barter-like system. But they began to use gold uh, or other types of currencies uh, as a kind of common unit of account, right? And, and the reason why somebody would accept gold, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, is because the two people in the transaction believed it had value. Right mm -hmm. now, when you fast forward to today, what ends up happening is uh, we've removed that underlying commodity. So, you know, in 1971, the U.S. dollar broke from the gold standard uh, and we now have a piece of paper or an electronic kind of, you know, ones and zeros on, on a computer. And the only reason it has value is because you and I believe it has value. Right. There is no underlying commodity that there's kind of no intrinsic value to it. Now, some people will argue, oh, well, it's backed by the most powerful military and, and that stuff. And, and that's definitely true. Uh, but at the end of the day, the actual dollar itself is simply a belief system. And mm -hmm. so, you know, kind of, let's go back in time again. And so why did these other currencies fail? And it all comes down to uh, two core components. The first being the money itself was devalued. Right. So um, in something like uh, the Roman solidus's and, and kind of the, the Roman times, literally they would devalue the currency to the point where um, it had dropped so much in value that the actual economy and economic standing of the Roman Empire became weakened. And then it leads to the second piece, which is then there is violent conflict. And so what you would get kind of throughout history is you would start out with somebody wins a war. They implement their currency as the global reserve currency. Then you kind of devalue it over time because it's an inflationary system, right? As that happens, uh, that currency becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. And then eventually there's another conflict, a uh, violent conflict or combat. Uh, a new country is the um, kind of uh, winner of that. And so then you get them installing their global reserve currency. And so you've kind of seen this cycle repeat over and over and over and over again, all the way until we get to the United States, obviously won the war, uh, implemented the US dollar around the world. So I think when it gets to like the Ray Dalio saying cash is trash and, and things like that, what they're really talking about is um, there are two different Americas that happen, right? One that I call the, ed the financially educated and the non-financially educated. And, and I make that uh, difference uh, around education because ultimately the education is the common denominator, right? Do you have the education or do you not? Race um, and kind of everything else doesn't matter as much as if you're educated or if you're not. And this isn't an education meaning, did you go to high school or did you go to college? I'm specifically talking about financial education. And really what that means is, the U.S. economy and financial system is built on the idea that 50% of Americans do not have the education, right? And so when you break this down, here's what, what this kind of really means in, in data terms. So about 45% of Americans own zero stocks, right? And 45 to 50% of Americans could not come up with a $400 emergency payment without selling something uh, or, or just not having the money. 
And so that basically means 50%, give or take, of Americans are in the non-educated bucket, and I'll explain why in a second, and 50% are in the educated bucket. And so what does that mean? It simply just means that the dollar is going to lose value over time. That is the big aha, right? So 50% of people understand that, 50% of people don't. The 50% of people that understand it, what they end up doing is they realize if I hold dollars, if I live paycheck to paycheck, or I leave my wealth sitting in cash, it will be worth less in the future than it is today. Instead of doing that, I am financially incentivized to get out of the dollar and to invest the capital into inflation hedging assets. So I can buy stocks, I can buy real estate, I can buy gold, I can buy Bitcoin, I can buy all these different assets, right, all this kind of stuff. But I'm no longer trapped in the dollar and it's gonna be worth less and less. In fact, because the dollar is going to be devalued over time, those asset prices structurally are going to rise. So if you look at the stock market chart, if you go back you know, 70, 80, 90 years, it's literally just a 45 degree angle up and to the right over a long period of time. Now there's you know volatility in between, but it's up and to the right. Why is that? Well, it's because the stocks themselves are denominated in dollars. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because a lot of people, when they're thinking conservatively, they think, I'm not going to buy these risky stocks. I'm just going to keep all my money in cash. And I think a lot of people are looking at the stock market right now and seeing that, you know, it's hitting all time highs and they're like, oh, it's time to sell stocks. But what they, you know, oftentimes fail to realize is that the alternative may actually be more dangerous with holding all your money in the dollar, uh, especially given how much money is being created by the Fed right now to handle the recession. So why are so many smart people, you know, not realizing that? And, and what would you say to sort of help them to get that realization? Yeah, well, again, it goes back to educated class versus non-educated class on the financial, um, you know, kind of front. And, and really there, uh, the non-educated are the people who uh, either one, they are structurally put in a situation where they can't get out. Right. So mm -hmm. if you live paycheck to paycheck, you don't have savings. Uh, there's this constant feeling of like, I can't keep up. Right. I, I, I constantly yeah. am falling behind. I can't get ahead. And that's just because, again, inflation is eating away your wealth. You don't make enough money to actually save or invest. And therefore, like you're worried about, you know, I got to get my next paycheck. So I have food for my family more so than like, how do I actually grow my wealth? Right. So I think that there's there's some people just structurally um, they're in a really bad position and frankly, uh, a no fault of their own in many cases. Right. They just didn't get the ovarian lottery that you know, mm -hmm. some rich people did. or now, the college debt too. Like if you get in that debt cycle, all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. And, and then there's a, another group of people who basically, uh, they were in a position, but they made bad decisions. So they just held everything in cash. It lost value over time, that type of stuff. But I think that ultimately what we're seeing right now is people that kind of throw their hands up and say, you know what, I'm going to bet on the structural elements of the market rather than the micro elements that those macro type investors are the ones that are winning, right? Mm -hmm. and, and ultimately, it goes back to simple things like don't fight the Fed, right? When the Fed prints tons of money, they're going to inflate asset prices. Like structurally, that is how the system works. And when you see them going to print a bunch of money, get into the assets and get out of dollars, right? Like this isn't rocket science, but I do think that smart people, they almost get wrapped up in like the intellectual Olympics. They try to be smarter than <laughs> the market. Right. They try to like, what stock can I pick or, you know what, it's going to drop more before I buy it. Yeah, maybe there's some people out there that are good at that. But the majority of people, all they have to look at is how do I ride the more macro trends and understand structurally how the system works, how money works. And they'll be just fine. Right. And kind of over a long period of time, they can grow their wealth uh, without kind of having the chaos and stress of, of being a day trader or anything like that. Totally. It also seems like I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on specifically why, you know, Bitcoin as a currency is just a better system than the current, you know, 12 people in a room making decisions. And it seems like so much of technology is sort of moving in this direction where it's getting decentralized. You no longer need like people sitting in a room making decisions. It ha happens programmatically and there's smart contracts and, you know, increases productivity and efficiency. So what are like some of the sound monetary reasons why Bitcoin is a better currency than the current U.S. dollar. Yeah. So again, how does the U.S. dollar work is kind of the, the uh, first thing that we need to understand. And, and basically, 
The dollar is inflationary, meaning that there's going to be more and more over time, right, added to the circulating supply. And the decisions around how much gets printed and how quickly it gets added to the supply is made, like you said, by the uh, the Federal Reserve, right, basically 12 people go in a room. And uh, they're very reactive to the market, right? So they basically wait to see what's happening, and then they make decisions. And those decisions can be around uh, everything from interest rate decisions uh, to quantitative easing or, or the printing of more money. And so that system ends up being, uh, if you hold a dollar for a long enough period of time, it will be worth less in the future than it is today. Now, Bitcoin is 180 degree difference, right? It is literally the um, exact opposite. So to start, it is a deflationary system, meaning that there is a hard cap supply of only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. It's highly divisible, right? There's 100 million Satoshis per uh, Bitcoin, but there's only 21 million full Bitcoins that will ever exist. Then the supply schedule is disinflationary. And what that basically means is that uh, back in 2008, 2009, it started out with every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin were put into the system. That went on for four years. After that four year mark, it dropped to 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Four more years, it dropped down to 12 and a half. And then just this last May, four years after that, it just dropped to 6.25. And so what ends up happening is that monetary policy is not one, not only transparent, it's also coded into software in a decentralized manner, and it is programmatic. So when you get that, what you start to see is in the inflationary fiat legacy system, you and I don't know what the next interest rate decision is going to be, right? Mm. They told us they're not going to raise rates, but they could raise rates. They could go negative. We don't know. We actually don't know. Are they going to print more money this year? They already passed a $2 trillion stimulus package. Could they pass another one? People are speculating. Mm -hmm. Some people think they're going to do it. Some people think that they're not going to do it. We just don't know. With Bitcoin, though, we've known for over a decade that in May of 2020, there was going to be a monetary policy decision to cut from 12.5 to 6.25. Right. We just knew that, right? It's in the code. You can see it. It's transparent. It's predictable. It's programmatic, everything. And so ultimately what ends up happening then is how did these decisions get changed, right? Well, in the fiat system, 12 people go in a room, they look at a bunch of data, and they make a decision. But they're susceptible, just like everyone else, to human emotion, uh, human decision making, and they're very reactionary. So when something happens, we saw earlier this year, they had two emergency rate cuts, right? They're very reactionary to the market. Bitcoin is the exact opposite. Bitcoin doesn't care what happens. They didn't care about what happens in the market, didn't care what people do. It is a programmatic thing. And the only way to change the Bitcoin monetary system is to have more than 51% of people agree to a change. So it is a right. fully decentralized system. And because that would require millions and millions of people at this point to all agree on something, it is highly unlikely. I would argue it is nearly impossible to actually change that system. And so what you get is you get governance by the people versus governance by the elites, right? And ultimately what I personally believe is that governance by the people, right, in that decentralized manner is going to be one much more resilient but also much more effective over a long period of time. And so I always bring it back to every currency in the world is going to be digitized, right? We will have a digital mm -hmm. dollar at some point. There will be a digital yuan, a digital euro, a digital yen, all the way through the, the whole thing. We will also have private corporate currencies that are digital. So Facebook obviously created Libra. We'll see other companies come out with digital currencies over time as well. And then you have Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is the separation of state and money. It's a decentralized money. And the reason why that's important is once every single currency is decentral, or I'm sorry, is digital, now the competition is not on the technology front. Everybody uses the same technology, it's all digital. The competition comes down to the monetary policy. And the monetary policy competition, in my opinion, is no competition, right? Every fiat currency has the same monetary policy in the sense that they're an inflationary system. Yeah, they make little different tweaks here and there. There's different bells and whistles on their monetary policy on a country by country level. But at the end of the day, it's an inflationary system. Bitcoin is a deflationary system. And so if now anyone in the world has access to every currency in the world, right? All I need is an internet connection now, then I and others believe that people will end up choosing Bitcoin as that core unit of account in the digital world uh, and use that as the global reserve currency because it has that transparent, non-changeable kind of programmatic monetary policy that is deflationary and ultimately will prove to be superior.
Yeah, and this is one of the most interesting points I've heard you talk about, which is that Bitcoin was really the first cryptocurrency to gain that belief system and that trust. And you can't re you can only invent the wheel once. Like it, you know, you've compared it to the invention of zero, and so. That was one of the strongest arguments I've heard of why another currency won't come and overtake it, because I've heard the same arguments again and again by people who are skeptics who say, oh, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value or eventually some other currency is going to replace it or there's going to be some national currency that's going to replace it. But I think your arguments about it being decentralized and the real strengths of that rather than being tied to a nation and also, uh, you know, the fact that it was the very first one and it had a big head start in that regard. And so what would it be, what would it take for a new currency to overtake Bitcoin? It won't happen. Right. And, and the reason why I say that is um, let's go to the fiat world for a second. Right. Uh, if you're in Venezuela and your currency just failed, right, the Boliviar just failed uh, and the government comes to you and says, hey, guys, we're really sorry about that. We screwed that one up. But uh, good news today. We have a new currency that is way better. Use this one. Every single person looks around the room and goes, I'm not trusting you twice. Right. right. Like, like first time, shame on me or, or shame on you. Second time, shame on me. And so you're not getting me twice. I'm not going to use your new currency. I'm instead going to go find dollars or gold or some other currency. Well, same thing would happen with the separation of state and money is so I personally believe that there is a single shot to separate state and money. And what we have seen is Bitcoin now has garnered enough brand awareness, it has garnered enough mind space, and it has garnered enough adoption where this is our shot. Mm -hmm. If we are to separate state and money, it will be Bitcoin. If for some reason Bitcoin fails, whether it is a self-inflicted wound in terms of the, the development process, there is some sort of malicious 51% attack, whatever the, the, the kind of downfall of Bitcoin uh, potentially would be, if that occurs, there will never be separation of state and money uh, with this generation. Hmm. So you could get in a scenario where you, me, and everybody else gets old and we die off, and then the next generation who is never exposed to Bitcoin, they kind of believe in a new thing and they get a shot at it. But for our kind of generation and the population that's alive today, you're only going to get this one time. Because if this one fails, the next one that shows up and says, hey, guys, you know, sorry about the last one, but I got a new one for you. <laughs> like, this is the good one, right? We're all going to be like, it's just not going to work, right? No one's going to put their faith in it. And so I think that Bitcoin has hit kind of the tipping point where um, here's our shot. So far, so good. Uh, I actually think it's probably ahead of where most people thought it would be right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the key piece to all of this is it continues to get stronger. So it continues to get more people adopting it. It continues to see more and more transactions. And it continues to see more computing power put onto the network, which continues to strengthen it as the strongest computing network in the world. And so all of those, you know, quote unquote, fundamentals of a technology network are headed in the right direction. And we've obviously seen from a price standpoint over the last decade, it went from, you know, three tenths of a cent to today it trades at over $9,000. Like it's had this insane meteoric rise. I think a lot of people are sitting around saying like, eh, okay, like it's kind of over. Right, right, right. I'm of the belief though that like it's just getting started and um, this scares people when I say it, but I really do believe that Bitcoin has a shot to be worth millions of dollars per Bitcoin because what it'll end up doing is expanding the market cap of the global money supply. And so today the global money supply is kind of 80, 90 trillion dollars. Bitcoin's at 200 billion. So just if it got to call it 100 trillion, right? You're literally talking about a 500x in right. terms of the value in US dollar terms. Now, that's not going to be a straight line. You're talking about something that's going to go up and down and sideways and, you know, the volatility is going to be incredibly uh, intense. Um, there's going to be a lot of kind of secondary and third order effects based on the rise of this asset. But I think that's where we're headed. And, and frankly, I'm convinced that it's inevitable at this point. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, literally decades for it to play out. Totally. So let's say you agree with the concept of, you know, cash is trash. Eventually the fiat currency is going to zero and eventually digital currencies are going to replace fiat currencies. If you're an investor, 
what are the arguments for putting your investment into Bitcoin as opposed to, say, gold and silver or tech stocks or any other asset class? Because I know, you know, people like Ray Dalio, for instance, are they already uh, agree with the diagnosis of the problem. They just haven't quite gotten to the solution. So what would you say there? Yeah. So um, obviously not financial advice. I have no clue right. what I'm talking about. All, all the normal disclaimers that uh, that would go into this. But the, the framework that I use with our investors for myself and, and with others is I say to them, I believe that there's two financial systems. There's the legacy system that uses the dollar as the single unit of account or the base unit of account. There is a new alternative digital decentralized system that uses Bitcoin as the core unit of account. If you believe that that new digital decentralized system has a 0% chance of succeeding, literally zero, you should have zero exposure to that market. If you think that there's a 1% chance, so highly unlikely, but there is a 1% chance that it would succeed, then you should probably get 1% exposure of your net worth to that asset, right? If you think it's 5%, 10%, 50%, whatever the number is, that's how much exposure you should have. And so when you look at the two systems, you say, okay, let's say you thought it was 50-50. Well, mm -hmm. your personal opinion is different than what you do with your wealth. And so if you believe it's 50-50, then you should actually have 50-50 of your wealth. Now, most people don't believe that the digital decentralized system has a 50% chance. They're still thinking it has one to 2% chance, right? right? Highly unlikely, but if it happens, it would create immense value. And so that's where you know myself and my partners have kind of gone around the country saying, look, we have to get people off zero, right? If you believe this has a 1% chance of succeeding, you can't have 0% exposure. So you gotta get off zero and get 1% exposure. And so that's kind of the framework that we use. And what we're finding is this is true not only for the individuals, but also at the institutional level, right? We've got public pensions that have invested with us, hospital systems, insurance companies. They're starting to realize, wait a second, maybe I should go ahead and get 1% exposure, right? And, and, and kind of see how this plays out. And if it goes how I think it will, I'll add to the position. If it doesn't, right, in, in kind of the binary negative outcome, then it's worth zero, right? And I lost 1%, but I don't lose sleep over having lost 1% of my wealth for a potential, you know, very high multiple type return on the upside. Right. Yeah. And you were able to convince Jason Calacanis to put 3% of his net worth into Bitcoin. So I think, yeah, I think the arguments are totally sound. So maybe now let's get into some rapid fire questions because I want to save some time for the future scenario piece. So first rapid fire question, what platform do you recommend for buying and holding Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, I, I, so there's a bunch of platforms. Everyone always gets mm -hmm. mad at me. Uh, we are investors, so I will. Uh, I, I'm obligated. Uh, you could name a couple from, if that's better. <laughs> just from an ethos standpoint, uh, I personally think that BlockFi, which is a company that we're a very large investor in, um, is unique in that it offers two specific types of functionality. So the first is that you can go and you can actually buy Bitcoin through a crypto exchange that they offer, and then two is that you can then deposit some of, not all of the Bitcoin you buy, but some of the Bitcoin that you buy into their interest-bearing accounts, just like you would deposit it into uh, a checking or a savings account where you can get uh, interest. Um, oh, cool. Here, you can earn very high rates of return. Um, obviously, there's risks, so do your own research, all that kind of stuff, but um, that, that's kind of one that uh, is near and dear to me. We've done a bunch of work on it. We've invested. I'm a user of it, all that kind of stuff. Now, there's others that uh, operate as well, so you've got Gemini, which is backed by the Winklevoss twins. They, they found and run that. Um, very high security, kind of very heavily regulated. Uh, you've got Coinbase, which is the largest in the United States. Um, they, they've spent a lot of time kind of building up that brand and, and, and kind of trust, and they've got you know 20 million people using it or something. Uh, there's Kraken. There's a whole bunch of them in the United States. Uh, and then if you want kind of a very high uh, white glove experience, meaning that uh, similar to you know a stockbroker type experience where you can call somebody and talk to them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a company in San Francisco uh, we are not investors in, but just I, I think they're doing a good job, is a River Financial. And so they're kind of Bitcoin only and, and, and really focused on helping onboard people uh, in a pretty unique way. Right. And there are some hardcore crypto people who think I don't want to keep my Bitcoin on any exchange. I want it on a hard drive. Is that a wise approach? Like, do you think there's a risk in, you know, like, let's say the dollar collapses and the government seizes, you know, people's Bitcoin through exchanges? Um, is that something that is is at all on your mind or what would you say to people that have that concern? Yeah. So the trade off here is uh, always convenience to security. 
right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of people who say, man, it would be really hard for me to figure out how to walk around with any material amount of money on essentially a USB stick, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not comfortable doing that. And so if those people put, you know, 10 basis points, 20 basis points of their wealth and they leave it on an exchange, there's risk in doing that, right? That, that there have been hacks and stuff like that. The exchanges are trying to mitigate that risk by getting insurance, having rainy day funds to reimburse uh, users if, God forbid, there was some sort of hack, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but that is one option. The more popular option in the Bitcoin community is to go ahead and educate yourself on how to custody the asset yourself, right? So similar to putting cash in, um, you know, under your mattress type thing. Mm -hmm. In the digital world, you don't actually have to put anything other than you just literally put on a hardware device. And so there's companies like Ledger or Casa um, that have created some really kind of unique user-friendly type uh, hardware wallets um, that I generally think are worth people's time and, and effort to really get educated on how to do that. Um, and, and so it's kind of comes down to personal preference. There's a strong argument for custodying the assets yourself on a hardware wallet. But I think also being realistic, 100% of people are not going to do that. Some mm -hmm. people are still going to uh, prefer to leave it in somebody else's hands. And so what I tell folks is, you know, look, let's say that you're using uh, Coinbase, for example, or Gemini. Uh, they have kind of cold storage services. So you can literally say to them, hey, I want you to custody my assets for me, not on just the exchange, but actually in your custody division. They charge you a little bit of money to do it. But what it does is it gives you kind of peace of mind, right? Oh, in terms of it's secure. Now, you don't have control over it, right? So you give up mm -hmm. control, but you get security and it costs you some money. So there's always kind of trade-offs between all these different options. And I think kind of the most hardcore Bitcoiners uh, would, would have a strong argument for custody yourself and then all the way out to kind of the convenience end of the spectrum. Um, but really, it just comes down to personal preference of what people uh, are comfortable doing um, and, and kind of want to get started with because you can always, you know, go from an exchange to, to uh, self-custody later as well. Right. Now, what's your thesis on automation, joblessness, unemployability? You know, Andrew Yang and others have really made this a big point of what's going to happen in the near future. So in your mind, is this a major issue that we need to be preparing for, perhaps through something like universal basic income? Or do you think that this is just something we've you know, dealt with before and maybe the concerns are a bit overblown? A little bit of all of those things, frankly. Um, I, I definitely think that technology is deflationary, so you naturally are going to see job loss, right? As technology replaces human labor. Uh, I think that you're going to continue to see the devaluation of currencies. Um, and if people uh, don't have inflation adjusted wage contracts, they're going to suffer. So, you know, if you get paid 12 bucks an hour year in, year out, and they don't actually increase it uh, so that you can kind of fight inflation, you actually make less money every year, even though it looks like you're making the same. Um, and, and then on top of that, I think that. Uh, there's going to be the inevitable, you know, UBI type thing. I, what they call it, how it works, that's all right. up for debate. Uh, but I, I think generally, like, they're going to do it, whether we like it or not. Now, with all of that said, uh, what I would add in is we've seen this all before, right? I forget the stat, but it's like 80 or 90 percent of people in the United States were farmers at one point. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, you know. 2% now are farmers, right? It's so like, well, what happened to the other 88% of people? Like, where'd they go? Well, they went and found other jobs, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they became more creative, more productive. And, and so it's a thing of, I don't think necessarily like the jobs just completely disappear. There's an evolution of those types of jobs, right? And so you could have made the argument that like, oh my God, computers are coming. Like computers are gonna decimate the job market and there's gonna be no jobs for anybody because computers are gonna do everything. Well, that was, people were saying that 20, 25 years ago. And like, look today, now we all just use the computers and we're more productive, right? And so I think the same thing will happen. Like, yes, are, is robotics and automation, all that stuff gonna happen? Absolutely. Are we gonna be able to embrace it and actually use it to our advantage? Probably, right? And so in, in that situation, if you can kind of uh, combine educating people in the new world with new skills for the new jobs, you'll kind of mitigate some of the problem. Two is we're likely from a, a monetary policy standpoint or kind of fiscal policy standpoint, come up with some sort of UBI or modern monetary theory or whatever it is. Uh, and then three is like, look, yes, some people are gonna lose their jobs, right? And, and nobody wants that to happen, but that's just a reality, right? There's gonna be a day where uh, the 18 wheeler driving down the road is an autonomous vehicle and it does a better job than the human. Right. It right. doesn't get tired. It doesn't get in an accident, all that kind of stuff. 
Is that one year away, five years away, or 20 years away? I don't know, right? Uh, but it's gonna happen. And so like, we can either ignore this stuff and pretend that like the human is better than the machine, or we can say, look, we recognize this is gonna happen. We need to prepare for it now. Let's get people educated and ready for these new jobs. Um, and so that when that transition actually occurs, there's less pain in that moment. Right. I'm obviously a fan of the latter, but there's plenty of people who, you know, they're, they're going to fight it and they'll try, some will try to do it with regulation. Some of it will just do it with ignorance, um, you know, but those are the people who end up kind of getting left out in the cold because uh, they weren't prepared for uh, for the future. Totally. Um, and sort of on a similar line, what do you perceive as being the biggest threat to civilization right now? Um, the biggest threat. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, let me answer uh, kind of a, a nuance of this. Like, what's the biggest threat to democracy, right? I think is um, the lack of uh, individuals that are willing to stand up to the mob, right? And mm. what I mean by this is just there's a lot of social pressure right now, right? And, and this is across the the spectrum. But there is um, there's a group of people who they seek truth, not consensus. Totally. And I think that's really, really, really important, right? It's probably the most important thing in our uh, democratic society today is that we should not only one, protect these people, but we should encourage them and actually try to get more people to be like them, right? Because ultimately truth is more important than consensus. Um, but with the digital technologies we have and kind of cancel culture and, and you know the wokeness and, and all this kind of stuff, there's good aspects of that, right? Like for sure, we, we should create social change in, in a whole bunch of different areas, but we can't do it at the expense of truth. And so what we've got to do is almost have the merging of these groups, right? Can we get the people who are um, uh, kind of seeking truth to work with the people who are seeking consensus and, and kind of goodwill and, and all that stuff. I don't see that happening, right? I see more divisiveness than collaboration. And so I think that what we've gotta do is we've gotta instill in our society kind of facts and science and data and, and truth, um, because ultimately I, I do believe that that will lead us kind of out of the divisiveness, right? It's hard yeah. to kind of argue about the fact um, although people try sometimes. Uh, so I would say that like on a democracy level, that's one thing. In terms of civilization, uh, I, I, I tend to, again, just look at the data and, and history. We live in the most safe, prosperous time in human history, right? We are the most advanced civilization the earth's ever seen. I tend to think that that trend's gonna continue. And so rather than there be kind of threats to civilization, I actually asked the opposite question, which is what are the things that are only going to perpetuate the trend that is already underway? What are the things that are gonna accelerate that trend, right? Because I think that the civilizations of the future will be more advanced than the ones we have today. And so they will be safer, they'll be more prosperous, all that kind of stuff. Technology will be a massive part of that, but there will be other things as well, right? Education and stuff like that will also help to, to kind of perpetuate that. And so I don't really think of it as like a risk as much as just it, it's going in the in the right direction. How do we kind of push the, you know, push the snowball down the mountain faster um, so it can gain momentum and kind of get uh, further? Totally, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Awesome, well, let's get into the future scenarios now. So what in your mind is the worst case scenario for the future of Bitcoin? And specifically, I'm really curious, like what sort of sequence of events could occur that would lead to a bad scenario? Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario, in my opinion, is a self-inflicted wound, right? And what I mean by that is I, I believe today that is the only thing that uh, can hurt Bitcoin. Um, and a self-inflicted wound is basically uh, during the development process of the software, something would be introduced that would have uh, some sort of bug um, or, uh, you know, exploitable uh, backdoor or, you know, so, some issue with it that could ultimately lead to um, either one, Bitcoin being hacked, two, there being fraudulent transactions on the network, uh, or three, kind of stolen um, Bitcoin or inflation bugs, things like that. To me, the kind of core value of Bitcoin is that it's never been hacked, it cannot be manipulated, it cannot be accessed or controlled. At the end of the day, the security is 
by mm-hmm. far the most important thing. If that was jeopardized, I think that would be very detrimental. I don't know if necessarily Bitcoin would become worthless, but I do think that there would be a, a very serious um, shock in value uh, and also um, a, a, a big question mark around a lot of the narratives that Bitcoin today enjoys. So that's kind of the, the, the number one thing. Now, there are p- things that other people are concerned about that I personally am not concerned about, but other concerns would include um, somebody like the United States government or China or another large superpower could ban ownership of the asset. So hmm. if the U.S. government came out and said, hey, everyone in the United States, you, it's illegal to own Bitcoin, that'd be bad, right, in terms of for U.S. people. But I actually think it would drive massive adoption globally. Because there's a bunch of countries, including Russia and China, who would love to get off the U.S. dollar system. And mm-hmm. if all of a sudden there was a currency that they knew U.S. citizens wouldn't use and they could break the U.S. Uh, dominance with the dollar by adopting this new currency and them all using it, they would do it in a heartbeat. And so there's this game theory of like whoever bans ownership first, they get hurt the most. And whoever embraces it first, they benefit the most. Right. Right. So that's I'm not worried about it. But that is definitely a concern of other people is like, hey, there would be this um, pain that would be experienced if uh, a government uh, banned it. Another concern is a 51 percent attack. So a 51 percent attack basically means somebody has enough computing power to represent 51 percent or more on the network and they then therefore could make changes. So they could change the monetary policy. They could reverse transactions. They could do all kinds of stuff. It would cost billions and billions of dollars at this point to get the hardware, uh, install it, get the electricity and and execute this. At this point, we're probably talking about only a state level attack that could actually do this, right? Mm -hmm. You're you're talking about the nation state would have to have the resources in order to do this. Um, And what ends up occurring is that most nations are actually gonna be financially incentivized to see Bitcoin succeed rather than kill it. And what I mean by that is Ultimately, they can make more money by simply buying Bitcoin and holding it than if they go ahead and they actually uh, hurt the security, all of the value will be wiped out or or most of the value will be wiped out. And so that Bitcoin will end up being uh, maybe not worthless, but again, worth very little. And Mm -hmm. so I, I... I'm not very worried about it. Uh, And also I think that there would be a lot of kind of red flags along the way, right? We would see massive orders of hardware. We would see kind of hash rate coming on uh, online all at once from a single location, that type of stuff where people would very quickly understand what was happening. Um, But but I think those are the two other big uh, kind of threats that people talk about that maybe I'm not as worried about. Right, yeah, it might take some sort of black swan event, like maybe quantum computing really progresses and that allows for a hack, but you know, as of right now, it does seem very stable. But, but even like take the, the quantum computing, like again, I don't worry about that because if I had a quantum computer and no one else did, am I gonna go steal Bitcoin? Well, if I steal the Bitcoin off of the Bitcoin network, then the Bitcoin isn't valuable. So kind of, I, right. I just That's a good point. ends up not being valuable, right? It's like walking into the bank and as you're walking out with the cash, you light it on fire. Like, why'd you break <laughs> into the bank, right? And, and so, uh, to me, like that one's always been kind of a weird one of like, why would I use my quantum computer to steal something that then will become worthless uh, or worth much less? Um, and so I think like, well, what else could you steal? Like, you could actually go steal a whole bunch of other stuff that would be way more valuable than yeah, Bitcoin, and probably right? easier to hack too. Yeah, like I, I, I don't know, and, and maybe I'm wrong. But yeah. like it, it just seems to me like those are the things that people would go focus on. Um, and again, part of this is like it's game theory, right? And and that's what's so fascinating to so many intelligent people is just what would somebody do if they had a quantum computer today? Would they hack the Bitcoin network? Could they? Or would they go somewhere else because Bitcoin has very unique properties that would make it unlikely? We don't know for sure, right? But there's a lot of speculation around it. And I kind of end up on the side of uh, I'm not so worried about the quantum computing. Totally. All right, let's talk about the best case scenario. So what would the best case scenario be for Bitcoin, both from how valuable it could become and how it could improve society and productivity and efficiency in the free market? Best case scenario. Uh, Global reserve currency, 10 plus million dollars per coin, and um, it being the unit of account across the world, right? The global reserve currency. 
Um, and, and so how do we get there, right? Again, I went back to it's $200 billion asset today. Uh, it kind of continues to rise. It eventually becomes um, kind of worth trillions of dollars, right? Let's say market cap of gold, for example, seven, eight, $9 trillion. Uh, it then kind of starts to break into uh, worth you know, $20 trillion, which is essentially what the U.S. banking system is worth in assets, uh, then gets up to $40 trillion, which is about what China's banking system uh, is worth in assets. Eventually, it gets all the way up to $80, $90 trillion, which is the current global money, uh, monetary supply. Uh, and then eventually, if it got all the way up to, let's say, $150 trillion, right, uh, that $150 trillion is, um, you know, much more, you know, more than two or almost two X. Uh, what the current global monetary supply is. So people say, well, how does that happen? Well, if you go back and you look at you know, Uber, for example, Uber was a market expanding technology. Airbnb was mm -hmm. a market expanding technology, right? So there's people who said, uh, Uber's gonna go take out the taxi industry. All right, well, how big's the taxi industry? Are they gonna completely decimate it or are they gonna get 50% market share? It seemed you know, re relatively small compared to what ended up happening because they didn't just attack taxis, they expanded the market for cars. And now there's literally people who don't own cars because they take Uber, right? So it expanded that market or addressable market. That's what essentially what Bitcoin has the opportunity to do. So if you look at the global monetary supply, what it's able to do is it's able to say, well, hold on a second. Why do so many people buy real estate? And why do they buy art? And why do they buy gold? And why do they buy stocks? It's because they're financially incentivized not to hold cash. Remember going back mm -hmm. to the beginning, conversation where if I hold dollars, it'll be worth less in the future. So instead I go into these other assets. Well, if all of a sudden a currency came along that said, no, you don't have to invest. All you have to do is save. And if you save, it'll be worth more in the future than it is today. It'll start to eat into the market share of those um, uh, store value assets. So it'll actually take market share from real estate. It'll take market share uh, from gold, from art, from stocks, et cetera. And when that happens, you expand the addressable market of, of the money. And so that's a world where Bitcoin could be, you know, $150 trillion. I'd put it at about $10 million per coin once you incorporate kind of lost, stolen, um, damaged, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, like, is that probable today? No. Is it possible? Absolutely. Do I personally believe it's going to happen? Yes. Do I know the timeline? No. Um, but I'm also not just sitting here speculating about it, right? In terms of like my personal opinion, I've taken 50% of my net worth, I've put it into Bitcoin and I've said, look, this isn't because I invested early in 2011 and it grew, right? Like I took a pretty substantial amount of money, put it in and I said, okay, I'm gonna see what happens, but I'm willing to lose 50% because that's the downside. But I think that the upside here is so incredible that it is generational wealth type creation opportunity that I'm going to take 50% and let's see what happens. And so that's kind of the, the best case scenario. Um, and ultimately, if, if it does have that rise, it'll land as the global reserve currency. Everyone will choose to use Bitcoin as that global reserve currency because they know you're manipulating your currency. I'm manipulating my currency as two different countries. Well. Rather than play this game, why don't we just use the currency that we know nobody is manipulating? Yeah. Right? And, and the game theory just gets us to adopt Bitcoin. Yeah. And there is a point that I've heard a lot of people talk about that in order for it to become that global reserve currency, it would need to be tied to a tangible asset like gold. But, you know, that introduces counterparty risk. So maybe you could just say a bit about maybe why it doesn't make sense to have Bitcoin be like a claim on gold or some other physical asset. Yeah, one of the best ways to think about this is uh, when somebody says to me, what is Bitcoin backed by? I say the strongest computing network in the world, hmm. right? And that's what literally secures the network. And so when you think of it that way, uh, Bitcoin is backed by something, right? And ultimately what happens is in the future world, I, I talk a lot about this idea. Remember when I talked about um, kind of empires fall during violent combat and the winner ends up implementing their currency as the new global reserve currency. But that's true in the physical world, right? In the analog world where you and I go to violent combat as two countries and, and somebody has to win. But in the cyber world, it's not about offense. It's all about defense, right? Mm. He who has the best defense in the cyber world is actually the most powerful. Because if I can keep you out, then I can do whatever I want. But if you get in and I kick you out, then you it's over, right? Like, like you're out again. But Bitcoin provides that. It is the most defensible, strongest computing network in the world. And so ultimately what happens is the United States, China, Russia, all these different countries can attack the hell out of it. It cannot be penetrated. And so ultimately it is the most powerful. And in the cyber world, the defense is more important than the offense. 
And therefore, I believe it will ultimately be able to implement Bitcoin as the global reserve currency because of its defensive capabilities. And so I wrote this piece, it's probably a year and a half ago now, where I said, Bitcoin is going to implement the next global reserve currency by never firing a bullet, dropping a bomb, or sending their soldiers anywhere. It will be the most peaceful rise of a currency we've ever had because in the cyber world, it's a switch from offense to defense, right? Analog world, yeah. offense matters. Who can go kill who? In the, def in the cyber world, it's all about defense. Who can protect their kind of kingdom? And Bitcoin's the most, uh, you know, kind of strongest computing network in the world, the, the most defensible. And so I think that it's got a shot to, uh, to, to have that rise. I love that. Awesome. Well, let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. So you've said that you believe it will become a global reserve currency, sort of like cyber gold, and that every major country is eventually going to have their own digital currency, digital yen, digital euro, digital pound, dollar. So I'm curious how you see, and obviously we're not going to know for sure, but how do you see it playing out? Like, is Singapore going to be the first country and then other countries will kind of scramble? Is there going to be some schism between China and the U.S.? Like, what do you see playing out in the next five to ten years? Most likely scenario. It's already happening. They won't talk about it, but it's already happening. So we know that the most nefarious countries, uh, similar to how technology is adopted in the consumer space, the criminals always adopt the stuff first, right? So mm -hmm. who is the first people on the internet? Gambling, yeah, porn, right? You know, all <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? Uh, who is the first people to use cell phones and beepers? Drug dealers, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the criminals always adopt it first because they're constantly playing a cat and mouse game with law enforcement. So they always have to be innovative. They always have to be one step ahead to not get caught. And so they go and they find new technology. Well, the same thing happens at the nation state level. Who are the people who are forced to go find new technologies and be innovative? It's the countries that are the bad actors. So the Venezuelas, the Irans, the North Koreas, right now they're getting sanctioned, you know, out of their eyeballs by the United States and other countries. So what do they have to do? They got to go find new things to use. And so they're going and they're finding Bitcoin and, and, and other things. Well, how are they getting the Bitcoin? Some of them have invested in mining. So they're actually uh, earning Bitcoin by, by putting um, resources to work. Others are uh, conducting cyber attacks. So North Korea is famous for you know going and attacking all these different places and stealing Bitcoin. Uh, and then others are earning it. So in Venezuela, for example, you can use Bitcoin to pay for uh, getting an ID for example. And so they're, they're earning it from their citizens, giving it to them. And so those are very kind of small scale examples and, and kind of on the fringes, but that's already happening. Now, at some point, we're going to get kind of the big inflection point. There will be a government somewhere who says, we're going to put this in our uh, central bank reserves. I don't know who it will be, but the day that happens, it will set off this massive um, kind of FOMO effect across the world because everyone else will say, wait a second, there's only 21 million of them. What do you mean X country just put in their central reserves and they just bought 2 million of them? We got to go buy some. And then you all of a sudden you're just going to get this massive price war uh, because the uh, demand for this asset is going to drastically increase, but the supply will stay the same. And so price has to move. Um, and so I think that we're, we're um, you know, in the very early days here, but but I do think that that is going to be the pathway. Um, is it's going to take one country uh, that people respect, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't a nefarious actor uh, to do this, and when they announce it, uh, I think we're going to see an absolute, um, you know, incredible uh, situation uh, unfold. Yeah, and for the U.S. in particular, do you think that it's likely to be like sort of the FOMO effect, where another country does it first, and we need to compete, or? Could it also be like there's some massive collapse of the legacy financial system and we sort of do it out of necessity? Do you like which of those do you think is more likely? So that's definitely an option. Uh, we're seeing that like in Lebanon right now where the currency is falling, you know, 80, 85 percent against the dollar. Uh, people are getting locked into capital controls. They can't take out money in anything other than the local currency. Uh, they can only take out so much money out of an ATM at a single time. Like all of those capital controls are hurting them. Uh, the price of food and, and goods and services around them are exploding. So basically they're getting poor, right? They're, they're losing their wealth right before their eyes. Uh, and they're looking for other things. So Bitcoin has become kind of a safe haven for, for many people, uh, both to send money abroad, but also to, to just store their wealth. Um, and, and so I think that like that's an option. 
I just don't see the major uh, national currencies failing in the short term. Mm -hmm. So the the probability is that they are more likely to embrace it rather than the people flock to it out of necessity because of a failing currency that they use in their everyday life. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. I'll just have one last question and then we'll, we'll wrap up. So what advice would you give to a young investor who is really just getting started and just sort of trying to figure out how they should be thinking about investing and building wealth over time? Yeah, I, I think that it really comes down to education, right? So if you understand how money works, uh, a lot of this becomes much clearer. And uh, especially if you're young, like get started today because the effects of compounding and, and time really work to your advantage. And so, you know, I'm in my early 30s, but if I had started 10 years ago, I'd be much better positioned than if I started today. And, I, you know, if I start today, I'm in a much better position than if I started in 10 years from now. And so I think that it's just get educated. Uh, I, I always say educate yourself because no one's going to look out for you like you're like you're going to look out for yourself. And, and I truly believe that. Um, and so taking personal responsibility to, to kind of learn this stuff is important. Uh, and if you can get started today, you've got time on your side, which is a, a, an advantage that doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't buy more time. So I think that's a, a key piece of a lot of this. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you so much, Pop. And thank you to our listeners. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for having me. The past, the present, and the future.